Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hanna-Barbera is known for creating some of the most iconic characters that graced our TVs on Saturday morning cartoons. The movies made from those characters? Well, that's a different story. But fret not, cartoon lovers, because we're here to tell you that Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, grades in B, movies. And normally, if I was to sit here and tell you, hey, guess what? We're going to do a film directed by James Gunn. You'd be sitting there going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought all your movies had to qualify on the tomatometer. Well, guess what? This one does. Because we are talking Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. And here to Scooby-Doo this sh- with me is Lyle Robichaud from AM640 Toronto. Lyle, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, man? Doing great, Jason. Doing awesome. So happy to be back and uh, to talk about another movie from my childhood. Right. Now, when you pitched this film, A, I was surprised that I had never actually watched it. But what is it about Scooby-Doo 2 that, that made you want to you know lift this up as the sacrificial lamb? Well, like I, w- I was saying before, this was one of those movies. Every kid has that one uh, media property that they really sink their teeth into. Nowadays, there's the Blueies and there's the Peppa Pigs. Uh, when I was a kid, it was very firmly Scooby-Doo. I had every VHS of the 1960s cartoon, all the direct-to-video movies, and in the early 2000s, those were bangers. Shout out to Zombie Island, Alien Invaders. Those were classic cinema when I was a kid. And when they came out with the live action movies, I was like, that was my entire personality for the uh, five and six year period where they came out. So it was a no brainer. Unfortunately, wasn't isn't good in retrospect, but this movie will always hold a place in my heart. Now, if I'm being honest here, for me, that was Transformers. I was the Transformers kid like this. This was my this was my jam growing up. We now need a mystery machine Transformer. This needs to happen. Oh, my goodness. That would be fantastic. Yes, that's the cross. I can't believe that hasn't happened. Right? I mean, like, that seems like it's kind of a no-brainer when you think about it. These two properties, like. Right? I mean, we already have, you know, the Ecto-1 Ghostbusters Transformer. And if you haven't seen it yet, go, you know, go do that. I have on my wall the TIE fighter that transforms into Darth Vader. So yes, absolutely. This, oh, I've this, seen that. I've seen that before. That thing's cool. It's on my wall, still in the package. Yeah. Ooh, mint condition. Right? Oh yeah, no, that, that that's gonna be one of those things that like it'll be it'll be like the doctors tell me that I'm dying the next day. I'm like, bring me the toy. Just bring me the toy. And that's when I open it up and transform it. Like, my life is complete now. And then we're gone at that point. That's it. That's the final, like, two seconds of your life. (laughs) I I feel like Barbie now. Do you ever think about dying? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into this sequel, before we get into this Saturday morning sequel, it is time to take Scooby-Doo 2 and Scooby-Doo this and trailerize it. In Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn brought you the tale of four heroes and a talking animal and made you rally around the lovable losers in a film filled with CGI and a dancing. But before that, he tried to tell the tale of four heroes and a talking animal in a movie filled with CGI and a dancing in Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. Mystery Incorporated is back to unmask the ghouls and ghosts that are haunting Coolsville. 
but not until each of them deals with a crippling existential crisis that makes you wonder they need to just sit down and have a good talk with someone. Too bad that talking is for losers. Together, they'll fight their past, fight the media, and fight their own crippling lack of self-confidence in a movie that makes you question how any town would rely on them to save the day. It's Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. Rated PG for Phantoms and Ghosts. That got me. That got me at the end for <laughs> Phantoms and Ghosts. Because as I'm watching this film, I'm like, oh, dear God, is everyone having an existential crisis in this film? Because it kind of feels like they are. And and that's what it is. It's a lot of that compared to the first one, which was very much you could tell they were basically like, can we make a Scooby-Doo live action movie and not just follow the plot of the show? Because if you follow the plot of the show, it's going to be a 20 minute movie. It's, oh, yeah. you know, you have a couple chase scenes in a museum. You take the night helmet off the guy and it's the janitor from the beginning. It's it's cut and dry, copy paste, but it's it's so entertaining. So you could tell the first movie was very much a testing the waters of can we put these characters on screen in live action and have people pay to see them? And this second one, it feels like they just took a shotgun at that drawing board and see what was going to stick because it was it was just a lot of stuff very quickly happening here. Oh, exactly. I mean, like, how many times have you seen that where like the first movie in a series is like, okay, we have the property. Now we have to see if we can make the film. Yeah, we did. Oh, crap. We did. And now the studio wants a sequel. Well, now what the hell do we do? See, it's funny because like I am here today. I will I will die on the hill for this movie, Jason. I'm here to defend this till the end. I think this movie was a little bit ahead of its time, and I'll explain that as we go along. Okay, well, let's figure out who's in this film. It returns everyone from the original, including Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, Matthew Lillard, Linda Cardellini, and, of course, Neil Fanning is the voice of Scooby-Doo. It also has Seth Green, Peter Boyle, Tim Blake Nelson, uh, and Alicia Silverstone, However, there's an almost starring in this one. As Old Man Wickers, as played by Peter Boyle, it was almost Michael Rooker, who of course played Yondu in Guardians of the Galaxy, and who was also in another uh, James Gunn film, The Belko Experiment. I don't know if I could picture Michael Rooker in this film, though. Especially not in that specific role, which is, of course... The original uh, Black Knight, which was the first episode of the uh, Scooby-Doo Where Are You TV show. Uh, Old Man Rickles was under the mask in that first episode. He doesn't really fit the bill, Jason. I agree. I don't think Michael Rooker has uh, what I would think as, you know, kind of like the shriveled old man who's going to wear a night collar. If Michael Rooker wants to scare you, he can just do it. He's Michael Rooker. Right. And and that's the thing. I mean, we'll get to that in a bit, but that's the thing. There There is space for Michael Rooker in this film. I don't think that's the role for it. The movie is directed by Raha Gunnell, who directed the first Scooby-Doo film. Uh, as well, we've covered one of his films already on this show because we talked about the Smurfs. He also did the Smurfs 2, Home Alone 3, and Never Been Kissed. And it's written by James Gunn. So not directed by, but written by James Gunn. There were actually some accolades here. Good ones. We'll get to the bad ones in a second, but there is a good accolade here. Uh, and for the record, uh, this film is now, and as I take a look at it there, uh, X number of years old there, 2004. So it's almost, almost 20 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. I got osteoporosis as you said that. Old man's oh. got to sit here and read about all the stats on this film. Uh, oh, man, that hurts. <laughs> it hurts to hear that that's 20 years old. I went and saw this in theaters. Oh, right? my goodness. But this film is 20 years old. So if you haven't watched it by now, shame on you. That's on you. Spoilers like a mofo. Um, Melissa R. Stubbs was nominated for best overall stunt by a stunt woman for the scene where she gets hit by electricity and flies backwards. She lost to Monica Staggs and Zoe Bell for their sword fight in the trailer in Kill Bill Volume 2. Like, yeah, it's it's hard. You, you kind of have to That's sit That's a fair there. one to lose to. Right? That's like, a fair one to lose to. Like, you're not, like, if, if I'm second place to that, like, any other day you're first place. Yeah, exactly. 
at the Razzies, this film won for worst remake or sequel. And at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, it was on a long list of dishonorable mentions for worst film. The worst film that year, by the way, Catwoman. However, it did win for worst resurrection of a TV show. It beat out Fat Albert and Starsky and Hutch. It was nominated for Worst Sequel. That lost to the whole 10 yards. And it was nominated for Least Special Special Effects, once again losing to Catwoman. Now, the first movie did pretty good at the box office. And the second movie, it did okay. Did okay. The budget was $80 million. And domestically, it made $84 million. Worldwide, $181 million. When it was released on the March 26, 2004 weekend, it took some of Lyle's money when it finished in first with a whopping $29.5 million that weekend. Uh, in second, also debuting was The Lady Killers. Also as well, at number five, was another film that we've talked about on this show, Jersey Girl, which debuted with $8.3 million. And then also debuting at number 11 was Never Die Alone, which debuted with $3 million. However, however, the reason why we're here, the critic scores. Over at yeah. Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 34. And over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 40%. The tomatometer is 20%. Now, this is interesting to me, okay? The first Scooby-Doo had an audience score of 39%, but a tomatometer of 32 So, the critics liked the first movie more than the second. However, the audience liked the second better than the first. And that tracks with me. Because uh, this is one thing that I can say. If there was a Pawn Stars episode and they needed a Scooby-Doo expert, Jason, they could call me anytime and I would fly down to Vegas. I have seen, I would like to think that even up until recently, I have seen every Scooby-Doo bit of media there is. And I agree that this is much, this is leagues better than the first movie. I think it's much better. And I can't believe that it got a worse rap than Fat Albert when it first came out, because that Fat Albert movie is terrible. Right. So I think that it was up against that, and this loss to, that this this was deemed worse, that hurts my heart, because I think that this movie is leagues and bounds better than what the critics say it is. Speaking of, you know, Saturday morning cartoons translated to movies should never have happened. Yeah, really. Yeah. Now, for perspective, and yes, I recognize that James Gunn is only the writer on this in the first Scooby-Doo film. However, when it comes to the tomatometer, of films that James Gunn is involved with, this is his second lowest critic score. The lowest. And even though he only directed a small part of it, was the movie we covered for episode 43, movie 43, where he directed the Bezel segment, which has a tomatometer of a gracious 4%. Actually, it's not, it's not 4%. We already said that it's not 4%, but just for the record, this is the second lowest tomatometer of James Gunn's career. Not that he needs our approval or any other critics approval, but let's get into why this film is so good. Okay. So we start with Fred as played by Freddie Prinze Jr. How was he for you? See that that's one of the few things that I think when you're looking at an ensemble cast, which this is like you have it you immediately off the back you have an ensemble cast in front of you because the the cartoon has four characters and one that you know is going to probably going to have to be CGI right off the bat you have this tall order in front of you of four specific characters that have four very distinct personalities you have to nail the look and you have to nail the acting the personality of that uh, of that color coordinated uh, 1960s vibe as they all have i love freddie prince junior as fred you can tell that he really cared about it, and you can tell that he threw a lot at it, even though he had every right in the book, just as every single one of these actors did, to not take this seriously and play it up as campy and cartoony. You're right. Everybody in this movie is having an existential crisis, but at least they're taking it seriously and not kind of taking the piss on it like they are the old cartoon show and everything else that's happening. 
this is where I, I really enjoy what this film did is that it wasn't just, you know, a retelling of what happened on Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, if you wanted that, you know, you go take a look at the Flintstones movie. Actually, don't. Don't don't go look yeah, at the Flintstones don't do movie. That. No, just don't look at that. Flintstones and don't listen movie. to the soundtrack either. I don't, I don't know who had what on the B fifty twos, but no, just just don't. But here with this, and this is where, and I want to give James Gunn full credit for this because as a writer, he obviously identified these things and said, "Okay, we're going to go with that." Is that it took the aspects of the of the property and played on those tropes. That they that they themselves played on here, and in Fred you have the the supposed macho tough guy, even though he wears an ascot everywhere he goes, right? Which, you know, and has fun with them. That's the thing. This isn't a spoof of the character. That was Starsky and Hutch. Starsky and Hutch was a spoof on the property, right? Flintstones was a bad retelling of the property. This took the property. And smartly played on everything that the property was in a way that it at, at times pays respect and at times has a good knowing chuckle with it. Not at it, but with it. And with Freddie Prince Jr., I mean, there was so much going on about like the actor's pay with this movie that he had every right to just sit there, throw up his hands and mail it in. But I think he had a ton of fun with this. And that really comes across here. Absolutely. And I think that he has some of the funnier moments in the movie right at the beginning when they're going to the uh, uh, Coolsville Criminology Museum, which is just like right from the get go. It's just tongue in cheek. Like you said, it's not laughing at what it's at, what it's adapting. It's laughing with it and kind of saying, like, we're going to take this seriously and do an updated version of the story. But we all have to admit that having a villain that's called the Candy Glob is hilarious, right? It's when the the newscaster comes up and interviews him and he does the clip where I think Coolsville sucks and then they edit it like that's that's just funny. I think he did a really good job. And just like you said, they had every right with this to phone it in, mail it in for the money. And it's a sequel based off of a cartoon from the 60s that we're adapting. But he took it seriously. I think him and uh, one of the other actors that we'll mention very soon. Was, was the highlight of this for me. I love Freddie Prinze Jr. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, if you're going to have a character that is supposed to be, you know, the serious one, is supposed to be the one that gets everything done, and here he's one of the most useless members of the team in this one, but doesn't realize that he's the one of the most useless members of the team in this one, It, it again, it plays on on the property and has a knowing laugh with it. Absolutely. I think it does that with all of them, though. It does a really good job of taking the stereotypical because they all are stereotypes in their own way. Shaggy is the, you know, the who cares kind of like stoner esque character. They even make fun of that in that same museum scene where he uh, he notices his fans via smell. Nobody Mm -hmm. else does that. He's the only one that knows his fans via smell. Daphne, who's the damsel in distress, who they do a really good job in both of these movies of turning into a competent, kind of stronger character than she was in the show, more than just kind of a background stand. And uh, Velma, who I think was one of, uh, like, really one of the best parts, the kingpins of this movie, was uh, was Velma, who honestly is probably the most interesting member of Mystery Incorporated, if you're going to break it down and, like, really look at all of them on their own merit. I think Velma's probably the one that has the most, uh, most backstory and m- most fun you could have with a solo show, even though the solo show is really not good. No <laughs> Well, since how you talked about the damsels, let's start with Daphne as played by Sarah Michelle Geller. And you're right, right? Daphne is, you know, the pretty cheerleader that that hangs around the hunky Fred in the cartoon. Here, Daphne's a little on the badass side. And very much so. And I think it works very well. I think I think it does too, because I think that's something that maybe the original incarnation was missing. Like, there's so much running away from things in both the show and these movies. There really should have been a character other than Scrappy who was like, no, you know what? I'm not scared of this guy. Let's let's do it. And I think kind of using Daphne as the surrogate for that later on down the line in this was a good call. Oh, yeah. I mean, also consider who you have playing Daphne. It's Sarah Buffy. Michelle Geller. 
Exactly. Buffy. It's, yeah. You have Buffy the freaking Vampire Slayer as Daphne. And in doing that, you know, if you're watching, I, I cannot picture Sarah Michelle Geller in a helpless, hopeless damsel kind of role. She's too badass for that. So smartly, they took that, you know, that, that very confident aura that Sarah Michelle Geller has and played on it and and made it part of Daphne that I think you know th- this is a smart film and I think it doesn't get the credit maybe for being as as strong female character centric as it is and it's because it came out before its time like I mentioned Jason I firmly believe that if this wasn't a sequel to the original Scooby-Doo live-action movie, and it came out today, and it was just called Scooby-Doo, and it was a live-action, and they just picked this up exactly. Because really, if you watch this movie and you didn't see the first one, you're not behind in anything. There is no continuation. There's no plot threads leading over. from. There's barely any mention that the first movie even happened. So say you're watching this in 2023, and it comes out better CGI, whatever, exact same cast. And you just start out with Mystery Incorporated going to the Criminology Museum. They've had a lifetime of achievements, and the story picks up from there just exactly as it does here. I think this movie would do fantastic today. Oh, I mean, you'd say it's ahead of its time, though, right? Yes. I'm, I'm going to argue that one, I think, and I think it's the beginning of its time. And hear me out on this one here, right? We are a little bit after Kill Bill Volume 1. You know, it lost one of the stunt awards to Kill Bill Volume 2. And that that duology is very, you know, if, if ever it was a category in Netflix, you know, characters with a strong female or movies with a strong female lead. Yeah, those two need to be on there. And I think the, yes. this movie would also qualify as movies with a strong female lead. And we're also, and I, I recognize it's not the best film, I get it, you know, but we're a year before Elektra. And even though it's not the best superhero film, it's still one of the few movies where you have a female superhero leading the charge. I mean, and again, this is also in the year of Catwoman, right? Which, again, I yeah. recognize it's not the best film, but it's a movie with a strong female lead, regardless of what you think of the film. I think there was an early renaissance here with some of these films that maybe led the charge for what we're getting now and i think it's a good thing for sure i think this is actually if you take a look at those films i mean the kill bill films they stand on their own absolutely but the other films this film stomps on them quality wise script acting everything it is it's it's a it's a good way to point to that and say hey look you have some strong female characters here. It's not a bad film. Yeah, and not just strong female characters, but plot-centric strong female characters, too. Because mm-hmm. I find, especially around this time, there was a lot of female characters, and some even strong, but none of them that had the plot centering around them. It was always like a background. There was always a subplot going on. So, like I said, Velma and Daphne really kind of taking center stage here. And it's hard to steal the thunder from Matthew Lillard's Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, but I do think that here they do a really good job, Velma and Daphne, of kind of making their own niches for themselves and taking the bare-bones kind of uh, overarching personality traits that were given to them from the show and really fleshing them out in the best way possible, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, beside her is Linda Cardellini as Velma. You're right. She is one of the more, probably one of the most interesting characters in this film. Yeah, and the everything, everything from the relationship with uh, Seth Green, the will they, won't they, to the kind of like identity crisis she's having of like, am I just this, you know, like uh, turtleneck wearing, can't see without my glasses? Am I just this nerdy person or do I have to be kind of uh, the grease moment? Should I like gus myself up and go out there? Is that going to make me a better person? There's a lot of like deeper questions than you would expect from a Scooby-Doo movie with this character. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that, you know, it's a cartoon character. And I think of everyone in the cast, Linda Cardellini has the most cartoon-like expressions 
in you know in regards to something that pops up in the scene in the moment uh a very expressive actor in this uh and i i love the fact that even even her voice almost try you know tries really to well say. to mimic exactly what velma would sound like from the cartoon her her voice was spot on. One of the things I went back, I've seen this movie probably. We did Batman Forever on a previous episode. I've definitely seen this more times than Batman Forever. And her voice is one of the things that really makes me, she's perfect for this role. She sounds exactly like Velma from the cartoon, exactly from the director to uh, VHS movies. Like she was spot on. The confidence in her, it's not from, you know, trying to dress sexy in the you know the leather fart sounding suit it's the it's the realization that yes she is you know a, a smart deductive you know slave to mystery and adventure kind of thing and that's what's good about her and that's what's sexy about her and that isn't necessarily a bad thing and it's nice to see that because like it, it's a really cool character study to see that somebody's having that kind of should I or should should I not be this? And so many movies go, yes, you should. You should change this. And by the end of it, they're completely different. So it's nice to see a character go, especially with a female character, where it's like, no, you should say exactly how you are. That's the whole point. You're, you're great the way you are. And there's not enough of that. Even today, there's not enough of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, one could sit there and argue if they wanted to be nitpicky that the whole, you know, Daphne, you know, gussies up Velma and, you know, to try to try to make her attractive to Seth Green. Well, that's kind of like that. She's all that moment. Right. With Rachel Lee Cook. Yes. But I love the fact that they end up backtracking on it because, you know, it's it's just uncomfortable. But it's, you know, as much as you want to pick on that, it still doesn't take away from the fact that. She's playing a cartoon character from a Saturday morning cartoon and that she is very cartoony in her expressions in the, in the best way possible for the moment. And she did, she does a really good job of kind of striking that balance between like, it's a new thought provoking version of it, but this is still Velma from Scooby-Doo. Where are you? Right. And then there's Matthew Lillard who played Shaggy. Oh my goodness. The, okay. the, the man who was born to play Shaggy. How was he? <laughs> um, man, I don't even know what to say about this man. I don't. I I have such a saw. I have such a big spot in my heart for Matthew Lillard, Jason, because of this. Uh, growing up, of course, my favorite character was Shaggy. I had Shaggy action figures. I had a Shaggy TV t t shirt that I wore out to the point where my mom and my dad for Christmas one year had to go to Fredericton, Moncton, St. John. They drove around New Brunswick to try to find this exact shirt because I asked for it for Christmas. Not a new one. I wanted that exact shaggy shirt for Christmas because the other one had so many holes in it from wearing it out under my hockey equipment. So to see him get brought to life was a huge, huge thing for me. Uh, when the first trailer dropped for the original live action version, I was going nuts because I didn't like understand how movies worked at that point. Still, I just knew that, Oh, this is real life Scooby-Doo. And I, when I saw Shaggy for the first time, just like you said, everybody thought the exact same thing. One of the universal constants that everybody says about both of those movies is that Matthew Lillard is Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no complaints whatsoever. I think he nailed it. I think when they were supposed to be kind of punching the bag a little bit from the old show, he did great at poking fun of the character but also being the character in the just the most prime sense of the word, the voice, the walk, the physical mannerisms. He really just nailed it in every way. There's always a worry that when a movie, a, li- a live action film tackles a cartoon property, that the portrayal of some of those more cartoony characters isn't going to to you know cut the muster when it comes to a faithful representation um looking back at masters of the universe you know obviously you're not going to find someone who you know unless it's in wwf or wwe at the time um unless there's an air hose shoved up their ass they're not going to physically look like that um yeah and they did the best that they could although when you take a look at skeletor even though it's not exactly necessarily cartoon accurate it's as cartoon accurate as you were going to get in the 80s 
lovingly played by Frank Langella, who had just so much fun. Here, it's it's not like you can hide them behind makeup and prosthetics. It's they're going to be that or they're not going to be that. And, you know, Matthew Lillard, it's it's almost like he was born to play this role. Like the like it's almost like the character was molded off of future Matthew Lillard and it's like does James Gunn have a time travel to like go back say no no no, we're going to craft this person we're going to clone them and they're going to be shaggy in 20 years and I will write that film and that's what I mean it almost looks like the show from the 60s was modeled after his performance in this that's how good it is and like yes it's a small part in like a cartoon movie that's bait that but still like to just have somebody who is so bang on what you're looking for is rare in Hollywood even today like there's been so many reboots revamps uh bringing back of old IPs now and this rarely happens as accurately as it did with Matthew Lillard Mm -hmm. I mean like you take a look at a movie like Blonde you know, and when they announced that Anna de Armas was going to be Marilyn Monroe, you know, people initially lost their their ish. And then you know, the trailer comes out and there she is. And like, holy crap, she looks like Marilyn Monroe. Right. Uh, Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers. Like, oh, my God, did so well here. And it's a it's brave to take on a role like this. Because you run the risk of being typecast if you're or if you're too good, you know you're that shaggy guy. Oh, okay. Like we recently watched in the name of the king a dungeon siege tale for the most recent grading on a curve episode of which I'm so I'm sorry I'm sorry. You just made you just made my my body temperature drop like two degrees by saying the name of that movie. <laughs> um, but when you when you watch that film and you realized that it was Matthew Lillard in that film as the villain. Did you have to do a double take at that moment, realizing that this is Shaggy? I was just so happy to see him that it didn't really mean, matter to me. I was just like, I don't care what he's what he's doing in this. I'm just happy to see Matthew Lillard because at that point I was so tired of what was going on. And when he came on the screen, I was like, somebody I can look forward to seeing in a next scene. But it, it, it I don't think he got typecast as bad as he could have, because there was definitely, like you said, the danger of, of playing something like this, where you're just going to get typecast into the stoner friend or like the funny kind of sidekick best friend person. But I, it didn't happen to him. And I think it's because of how good he was at this, that he can't do it again. You can't go and transfer that to it because you're just going to be if you were the writing another movie and you cast him in it. You would try to, I think, tell him to be something much different than that because everyone's just going to be like, why is Shaggy in this movie and not in Scooby-Doo? Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, speaking of Scooby-Doo here, um, obviously, Neil Fanning nailed the voice of Scooby-Doo. But of course, we're talking a CGI dog here. So I'm going to ask you now, almost 20 years since the release of this film and going back to watch it now, does Scooby-Doo hold up as far as CGI goes? It, it's better than it could have been, especially at this stage of the game. This year, this kind of time frame, it was very much a hit or miss with the CGI. Does it hold up 100%? No, obviously. We have things like the Avengers movies, Marvel's pumping out CG that looks so incredibly real. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania is the one that pops to mind. When people ask me what is the most impressive CGI, like there's so much going on there and there's so many characters that are 100% CGI. But is it bad? No, it's not egregiously bad. It's not laughable bad. It doesn't break the immersion at any time and it doesn't make you laugh at it in the way that you're not supposed to, which some movies, even newer than this, do make you do with the quality of the CGI. So is it perfect? Obviously not. It came out in 2004. But is it as like laughable and kind of uh, insulting as it could have been? No, I don't think it is either. I mean, there is something to be said for the fact that it is you know, a, a Saturday morning cartoon property. I'm, I'm not going to say it's a kid's film, because it's really it's it's not a kids film but you know the kids are going to go see it and i think that takes some of the pressure off of it being you know as you mentioned like you know mcu level kind of cgi um but there is something to be said like like if it's a if it's a kids film or if it's aimed at kids is the pressure there for the cgi to be as good see i think if it's a kids film the pressure is there for it to be better because I think with the kids, you're really looking for that like shock and awe. With adults, they can kind of check their brain at the door and accept it for what it is. But if a kid sees bad CGI or something that looks weird or something like that, they're they're gonna pick it out a little bit harder. I think almost that's what I was like when I was a kid. When I saw like stuff that looked really really bad, or I remember when I was watching old cartoons with my dad, Looney Tunes, and there'd be that there'd be three or four doors, but there'd be the one door that actually had like an outline, so you know that's the one they're gonna open. I would pick that stuff out. So I think if you're doing a kid's film, you almost have to have a higher standard of animation in my mind because like the kids are looking for that suspension of disbelief even harder than the adults are. Mm. And not to mention too, and again, this is 2004, right? And we're pre HD at this stage of the game here. We're still standard deaf, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's, that's a, you know, an excuse if you will but it is like if if you're designing something for standard definition so before you know pre-hd there has to be if you're looking back at it almost 20 years later you almost have to sit there and say well it was standard def you know i mean obviously it's it's a million times better than the cgi we saw in son of the mask which of course came out the, the year after but it, it holds up to a point, you're, you're right, uh, and I, I don't think what doesn't hold up takes away from it. I think that's the key thing. Yes, that's exactly it. Like, the stuff that isn't that great doesn't take away from the scene that it's in. And they do a really good job in, there could have been places here where they could have used practical effects and they didn't. A lot of the monsters that get reanimated from the costumes, you could have easily done CGI for all of them. But I would say more often, more most of them were practical effects, which which was good because you could have easily cheated a little bit. Obviously, you've got the 10,000 volt ghost. You've got the 
you know, cotton candy blob. You've got Captain Cutler riding in on a giant ghost pirate ship. You have to CGI that. But for the zombies, for the Redbeard Pirate, uh, the Skeleton Twins, stuff like that, it, it was good to see that they tried their very best to only use CGI when they had to. Yeah. I mean, he works and he sounds like Scooby-Doo. And that's the other thing, too, is that characters with iconic voices, when those voices aren't there, it's missed. You know, the saving, no matter what you think of any Michael Bay era Transformers film, it's Peter Cullen is yep. Optimus Prime. Optimus, Pri- Optimus Prime's voice is bang on. Even yeah. if I'm not the biggest Transformers guy, I understand that. They did nail that part of those. Yeah. Even in Dark of the Moon, knowing that Leonard Nimoy is in the cast, and of course he was the voice of Galvatron in the uh, the animated Transformers the movie, you know, there, there's that sense of familiarity in hearing those voices again. You know, it's, it's like anytime you heard Kevin Conroy as Batman, you know, it's it was it was right. And here Hearing Neil Fanning do this, it was right. But let's get out of Mystery Incorporated here for a second. Let's talk about Seth Green, who played Patrick Wisely here. Uh, to you, how was he? He was good. He's very conniving. You know what I mean? He was a very much red. Like, you knew as soon as he walked in, just like every episode of Scooby-Doo. Oh, he's the funny background character. He's going to be the one that is the uh, is the crux of all of this. He's going to be the villain. But I kind of love that they played off of that a little bit and it's different than the things that he usually does most of the thing that he's a dr evil son up to this point of course he's the mastermind behind robot chicken so a lot of the things he does is usually like kind of the funny person in the background like kind of uh what's the word i'm looking for kind of grumpy like he was in austin powers but here he's much more like reserved there's much more like i said of a conniving background character to him where it does make you guess a little bit whether he's going to be the villain or not. Well, I mean, if you're looking at Scooby-Doo and you kind of have to, uh, you know, not just a comedy and not and not just a, um, a reprisal of a property, but it's still a mystery at its heart, right? And, that, and that's what makes Scooby-Doo as a property work well because at its very core, it's still a mystery, and that's when it works best. And Seth Green in here as Patrick Wisely is that he is a red herring. You know, he has there's things about his character that make you question if he's the one involved. And it was very smart that, you know, whenever we saw like the the villain in the mask, ter- you know, tormenting Mystery Incorporated, we never saw Patrick around in those moments. He never in the same room. Exactly. He was we knew he was on site. But he had already left the scene at the moment. So, and the fact that there's this scene where he's, you know, yelling at the people at the villain bar to go find out where these suits are. It's, you know, he's a red herring. And I think he plays it very well. Plus, the fact that, you know, he's the, for lack of a better term, romantic love interest of of Velma. The two of them together is just funny. And they were kind of, it's almost like they were riffing off each other. It was. It felt like that they were having fun in that scene. And I always say a movie will be the best if it feels like both of the actors are having fun doing it. Yeah. And whenever those two were on screen together, you had that feeling. The, and the thing is, um, Velma is not. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to get backlash for saying Velma is not supposed to be a sexy character right Velma's the smart one she's the studious one she's the investigative one and Daphne by tradition's sake is supposed to be the sexy character um so I think the fact that they played Velma in a way where you know Velma and Patrick in that it's a very innocent kind of flirtation between the two characters yeah it's always fun when neither of them seem to have any idea what they're doing when they're into each other there's there's a couple movies that are like this but their, their relationship is very much when I said before that Velma is one of the better parts of this movie. Their relationship makes that so. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's innocent. And it's perfect for not just the characters, but the actors who are playing those characters to be perfect for the for that level of, for quote unquote, intimacy, even though there's not. But to the, uh, for these characters, it kind of is the right level for that. 
Yeah, no, 100%. It's like not to the sexual degree because that would be very out of place in a Scooby-Doo movie if you went to the point where like it was getting intimate. But for that kind of nerdy, like, you know, touching hands, like, oh, what is this? Ha oh, ha, oh, like that. It works really well, especially from a property where there wasn't a lot of romance. There was never anything outside of the usual, like, spooky mystery stuff in the original show. So, like I said, with a movie like this, where you have to try to expand that 20 minute episode into an hour, 30 minute, two hour movie, you have to try to find a way to get other things into it. And romance is definitely one of them. And they do a really good job kind of keeping it within the scope of a Scooby-Doo movie, but still having a love story. Yeah. You're not going to have, you know, Velma running around and Arya starking her way all over Patrick on this one. It's not going to happen. No. No. Peter Boyle as old man Wickles. Uh, My personal opinion, and again, this is nothing against Michael Rooker. Peter Boyle was the perfect, the perfect man for this role. No, I agree. The only other person I was thinking of was a John Lith, uh, Lithgow, if uh, if he was available. But I think Peter Boyle was bang on. And this is one of the one of my favorite parts of this is that it takes people that they have put away before, and kind of like what happened to them. Mm-hmm. If you were a fan of the show, this is one of the best parts of this movie for me. Anyway, it was even that horrible dance scene they did in the bar that was just for people who had been put away by mystery incorporated. One of my favorite things when I was a kid, when I went to the theater was seeing these characters that I've seen a hundred times in the old episodes. And they kind of made reference to them like, Oh yeah, he was Redbeard the pirate and uh, she was the witch and he was the witch doctor. And I love how they gave very special attention to the first villain they ever put away. Uh, the black Knight, which was old man Wickles. So it was an important, it's an important character in a way. If you think about it, from somebody who's a fan of the show, he is an important character. So when they mentioned that they were going there, I remember being in the theater and kind of looking at my friends who I was with at the time, like, this is crazy. Like, this is just like a TV show. And he played it perfectly. You meddling kids, like he just the exact kind of person you would expect to put on a suit and terrorize a museum in a suit of armor. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're right. Michael Rooker would be too intense. Gruff. Yeah. Gruff is the word I was thinking of. Yeah. It, not the right fit because you're looking for someone who's, you know, a bit goofier, right? And crazy, enough, crazy enough to put on a suit of armor and terrorize teenagers in a museum. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think in hindsight now, now that we've seen Michael Rooker as Yondu, you know, and you could maybe get away with that. But I think back then... Probably not. Uh, you mentioned John Lithgow. I could also picture John Cleese in that role as well. Oh, my goodness. He'd be perfect. That's a great choice. You're right. But to the same token as well, you're taking a look at character, you know, actors like John Lithgow and and John Cleese, is that they might be a little too big for the role. Keeping in mind that that, that old man Wiggles is, is, in essence, another red herring. Um, do you put a big actor in that role or do you put the perfect person for the role in that? He does bring almost an air of like reserves to him because that's his whole shtick, right? He doesn't want anybody coming near his house. He's a recluse. He doesn't leave. And you're right. I think John Cleese and Lithgow would be a little too over the top. There'd be too much like kind of playing to the camera and too much funniness to them where this is in, in the universe, an ex-criminal who is now like kind of shunned away into a life of uh, of a hermit. Mm-hmm. If you were going to put Michael Rooker in this film, I would actually have put him in the role of Jonathan Jacobo, as played by Tim Blake Nelson, because here it would have worked to have to have had someone as gruff as Michael Rooker. It's a very small role, and anyone who doesn't know Tim Blake Nelson, well, you clearly haven't watched The Incredible Hulk, so what's wrong with you? Um, but in this small role, did it work for you? See, it was so small, that's the thing. And one of the major complaints I have about this movie is they take, for the character that uh, ends up being, spoiler alert for a movie that comes out in 2004, for the character that ends up being like the big baddie in the end, I don't know why they didn't pick a more well-known villain from the show. Because when you think Scooby-Doo, you're not thinking the pterodactyl ghost, Jason. 
You're thinking, like I said, Captain Cutler. You're thinking the Black Knight. You're thinking one of the alien invaders, uh, the witch doctor, uh, even the laughing ghost, which is just the, the blue one that's always on all the bits of marketing for it. But a lot of people, me included, a bit like I was a big fan of the show, but I think I'd only seen the Pterodactyl Ghost episode maybe once or twice at that point. So it was just a very much a why this guy of all the people? Why him? And it almost feels like they picked someone who you weren't going to suspect just so you could have that twist. Maybe, or maybe, and uh, a friend of mine brought this up to me when I rewatched this movie. I actually, I messaged a friend of mine who was also a big Scooby-Doo fan. And I, I told her what we were doing. And I said, this is one of my major gripes. Is why did they pick the pterodactyl ghost? And she said, because it wasn't as fleshed out as some of the other ones were. And it was one of the very, very old ones. So maybe they could take some more liberties and kind of, you know, stretch out the backstory and make the character kind of what it needed to be for this movie. Whereas the Black Knight and stuff like that is very much like set in stone. There's people who have seen that episode a hundred times. Oh, yeah. it's It made for a, a decent little redirection. But let, again, spoilers. Let's get to the person who couldn't have done it or would have done it if it wasn't for those darn meddling kids. Alicia Silverstone as Heather Jasper Howe. How was she? She was fantastic. It's it's Alicia Silverstone. Of course, she's going to be good. But it's so funny because when you first watch this movie, they do the Scooby-Doo trope without you realizing it. They get you with it the first time you watch the movie because who is the first person, Mystery Incorporated, interacts with in this movie when they're stepping out of the limousine at the very beginning. Alicia Silverstone as Heather, the reporter. It's right there in front of you. You just forget it because they're throwing so many red herrings at you. And I think that's brilliant. I know people are going to sit there and look at this and go, oh, hey, you know, you've got uh, Linda Cardellini, who, of course, is Hawkeye's wife. You've got Seth Green, who is the voice of Howard the Duck. Um, I'm, I'm going to draw another Marvel parallel here. And obviously, because this film came out in 2004, it happened first. So James Gunn was the smart guy. Picture this, you know. The, the star shows up on the red carpet and is interviewed by uh, the attractive reporter and there's a, there's a level of flirtation there. That, that, that's just the first Iron Man. It really yeah, is. Yeah, it kind of is. It, re- it really is. You're right. You know, and the fact that Alicia Silverstone played it so coy and flirty, you know, similar to Leslie Bibb in Iron Man 1, obviously it didn't go all the way like it did in Iron Man 1, but it makes... You know, the, the turnaround when all of a sudden that, you know, the report isn't as flattering as they thought it was going to be. And we realize that, you know, Heather is not as much of a fan as Mystery Incorporated. It's it makes it for a very interesting look at it, especially when you consider, you know, years later and how people view the media and, you know, if they're telling what the the, the, the possible story of it. Uh, by the way, um, this is, again, this is a film in 2004, so this is before people are screaming at the, at the media. And even then, like I said, that gag we talked about before, where Fred's given the interview and then she cuts it to make it seem like he just said, I think Coolsville sucks. Like that is a very, like you don't see that very much. Yeah. Even in today's day, like people hint at it, but back then it was kind of almost a faux pas to be like, Hey, this is actually what happens on the news. Yeah. It's a, you know, it, it, it's sound bites for sound bites sake or sound bites for clicks sake, right? Yes, but, it's but clickbait. He, it's clickbait in 2004. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit more nefarious in this film because Heather is, spoiler, Heather's the, the villain. Um, so hope you hope you weren't waiting to watch Scooby-Doo 2 for, uh, <laughs> for a special moment. But if you're listening to this episode and you're this far in, you know what you signed up for. But she is, she's wonderful in this. And the fact that she gets to play the villain... Um, you know, Batgirl gets to play the villain. It's great. But yeah, it's so much fun to see, you know, someone who you normally picture to be in those either lead romantic roles or lead heroic roles to be able to get to be the villain once in a while. Yeah, and kind of stretch her. It's very much a departure from anything else that she'd ever done, too. So it's just interesting to see. And like, I think that kind of plays into why on first viewing this would kind of fool you a little bit. 
because you're not expecting her off of her kind of merits. So it was really perfect. Like I said, they did a great job of pulling a Scooby-Doo on you and not you not realizing it until the very end. And by the time you realize you've been had, it's almost like, man, of course. Like, that was me the first time I watched it because when it was revealed that it was her, I had this whole kind of overarching feeling of, like, I should have known that because she was the first person they talked to. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was, it was really good. I think they played her very smartly. And again, that's the thing. It knows how it knows the beat of the property and you, and stays in the beat, but riffs it in a way that, that is fun. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get you know psycho levels of Alicia Silverstone like you would in a movie like Crush. Um, you're not going to get that, but you're also not going to get levels of cheese like you like you got in Batman and Robin when she was playing Barbara Gordon. Um, it's I know I know I know but it's, she's right in the pocket in this and and she is a ton of fun um as a fan of the property you know as you were saying this 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 was your all you know at, at that age and being able to see it on the screen like this and then going back and watching as an adult obviously when we when there's things that we love as a kid and then we go back and we watch and we're like wow I was a real I was a dumb kid uh for liking this um is this that, or does it still hold up for you? It still holds up for me, Jason. I'm going to defend this. I'd Like I said, I'll die on this hill for this movie. I think the set design was fantastic. You felt like you were watching the Saturday morning Scooby-Doo cartoon when they were in the Black Knight's mansion, when they were in the warehouse chasing after the 10,000-volt ghost to that big, like, crazy laboratory where the main villain was cooking these costumes using a machine into actual monsters. It just felt perfect. It felt exactly like a live-action Scooby-Doo movie should. And one of the big things, I think, and when I said it was ahead of its time, I meant the female characters, but I also meant this. We are in in a world, I'm going to use your trailer voice, but in a world where we are watching movies that are obsessed with taking all of the things that used to make this property popular and bringing them into the present day. You've got your Spider-Man No Way Homes. You have these kind of combining of universes to bring back old characters, the Star Wars universes. This was that long before any of that was popular. You're taking a bunch of characters that only fans of the show from the 60s would know. A bunch of these monsters that are iconic for a certain group of people, and you're bringing them all and smashing them all together in this new era of stuff. You've got, like I said, Captain Cutler, you've got the Black Knight, the Skeleton Quins, the Skeleton Twins, the 10,000 Volt Ghost, the Cotton Candy Blob, uh, the Minor 49er. All of these characters are complete strangers to anybody who's never seen Scooby-Doo before. But if you have, it's crazy amazing fan service, which wasn't a thing at this time. There was nothing like this going on or if they were doing remakes of these old shows, like the Flintstones, great example. They bare minimum with that. They didn't touch any of the other crazy stuff until the sequel, Viva Rock Vegas, when they got into Kazoo and stuff like that. So just the fact that they took all of the stuff from this universe and tried to get as much of it into this movie as possible, while also very much like taking some punches at it at the same time, because it is objectively crazy when when you think about it, the dressing up, the disguise is the the scene where Shaggy and Scooby are in the warehouse drinking the potions and he turns to the Tasmanian devil. Like, they they have their fun with it too, but I really do think this movie did things that would not be popular for another 20 years. When you take a look at, you know, the long-lasting um, likability of these films, and you take you see what they're, they're still doing with the property, right? There was the Daphne and Velma series, which starts uh, Sarah Jeffrey as Daphne and Sarah Gelman as Velma. There's the Velma cartoon that's now on HBO Max, and of course, there's been oh. various, um, you know, different versions of Scooby Doo, like there's Scooby Doo and Guess Who, and then there's you know, so many cartoons that are still being made, but now you see them going into that more adult direction, kind of like what they, what they did with Harley Quinn. Uh, on Adult Swim, do you think that that like do you think that hurts the property more than these live action films does? I don't think so because I think it's such an old property, Jason, and it's such a property that everybody knows. It's one of those cartoons that even if you've never seen it, 
if somebody says Scooby Doo, you have a you have a picture in your head. If that makes any sense, you know what I mean by that. If you went up to somebody on the street and they've never watched it, hey Scooby Doo, yeah, yeah, the talking dog and like the, the kids that solve mysteries. Everybody knows that. So I think once you get to that level, once a property gets to the level where they have such almost like public domain level knowledge where everybody has a base, I think you can kind of go in whatever direction you want. And as long as it's faithful and well-written, it will still be good. One of the really good uh, Scooby-Doo series that you didn't mention was Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which is now on Netflix. And it was the one that went very, very serious with everything. It is still animated, but they it was about four or five seasons long and they had very long character arcs. Uh, they all had intermingling relationships and like how it can it kind of go up and down when you're like actively trying to solve mysteries and none of their parents believed them. And it was really, really good, but it was very much more adult than this movie was by, by a long shot. So do I think it hurts it? No, I think it just matters how you write it and how you take, like I said before, those base level uh, personality traits that each one of the gang has and flesh it out because you could easily like, make, make Shaggy an idiot and not funny. You could easily make Fred just this kind of like meat-headed jock and not have any redeeming qualities. You could easily make uh, Daphne the damsel in distress. It's when you kind of move away from that and try to flesh them out a bit more. As long as you're doing that, I think it's going to be good. The box office of this film was in essence what uh, what prevented the possibility of a third Scooby-Doo live-action film. And in previous interviews, James Gunn had said that the idea for the third film was going to be uh, they had to go overseas to stop these monsters, but then they realized that the monsters are being controlled by humans and it was supposed to um, make peop- make the, 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 the gang rethink you know, their, you know, how they're you know, constantly chasing down these monsters and whatnot. And is the monsters that it's really, is it really their fault? So, so I ask you 20 years or 19, at least at this point, I'm trying to give myself that extra year. Yeah, really me too. Like when you said 20 years, this came out, it, it hurts more than it should. Do you think we will ever see this cast get back together again? And I think it's gotta be this cast. Like, I don't know if you'd want to really swap anybody out at this point, but I, I think this cast really, they they fit the mold perfectly. Do you ever see this cast getting back together and finally doing Scooby-Doo 3? I really hope so. Because whenever any of them are asked about it, they always say that they loved this movie. It may, it, it was, I would argue that for Matthew Lillard, it made him a career because he is now the voice of Shaggy in most every Scooby-Doo property that comes out, Matthew Lillard is the voice. And I, I think that it would be excellent if they did it today. I don't know about the plot that you talked about for the third one. I've read I've read about that too, about how the third movie was supposed to revolve around them finding mo- like actual real life, not costume-based monsters. It was supposed to be like the Wendigo and Bigfoot, and they were going to have a bunch of famous monsters from reality that were being controlled by some evil government agency. Sounds kind of cool. And of course the Scooby-Doo premise from the beginning is always the people are the monsters. That's, that's been the, the shtick from the sixties is that it's the, the evil real estate agent that is the monster, not the actual monster. I really hope that someday we see this cast come back. You're seeing now more than ever, like movies that have been, it's been 20, 30 years since their release. Hey, there's a revamp coming out. There's a sequel. There's a mini series where the cast is getting back together. I, I think it would be a shame if this one went under the radar. This this deserves another look, I think. We'll just have it as Velma has now taken over the role of director of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, Lyle, it has come time. Who is your MVP of Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed? It's Matthew Lillard. It, it, it has to be Matthew Lillard. It's I, I, I my my inner child will not let me say anything else. There may be better actors in this movie, maybe more important characters in this movie that aren't as dumb sometimes. But uh, I went to the I went to the theaters for Matthew Lillard back when I was a child. And when I watch this movie now, I still watch it for him. And uh, it's not easy to play off of a CGI character. I'll give him that. He's talking to the air for most of this. So I'll give him that. I think in the first Scooby-Doo film, I would have agreed with you. But in this case, 
my MVP is Linda Cardellini as Velma. You're, that's you're, a fair choice. You're right. Like she is arguably the center point of this film. Like she is seemingly the engine that drives the bus on everything. It's, it's almost like it's her movie. And then everyone else is kind of in living in Velma world here. And it kind of shows why, you know, of, you know, live action or other animated properties are now focusing on characters like Daphne and Velma, because I think a movie like this showed just how interesting Daphne and Velma actually are. And it played Fred and Shaggy and even Scooby more for laughs, whereas Daphne and Velma were getting ish done. Lydia Cardellini killed it as Velma. She's my MVP. Lyle, thank you so much for getting me to watch this film. Truly, truly enjoyed it. Now, where can our listeners find you and hear you? As always, I can be found on 640 Toronto. I'm one of the content producers there. Currently working on the Toronto Today Morning Show with Greg Brady. Check us out if you are awake from the hours of 6 o'clock until noon. You'll be hearing my voice on 640 Toronto. All right, Lyle, thank you so, so much. And listeners, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there's no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. And while you're there, make sure you check out our blog and our coming soon page so you can see some of the movies that we are working on and drop us a line. We want to hear your thoughts, not just on the movies, but just in general. We'd love to hear from you guys. Until next time, Lyle, thank you so much. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.